Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. Hey, Dr. Greer. How's it going? It's going great. Joe Cotter. That, that is, of course, Sunshine Susanna Greer. So we spoke with three scientists at Dartmouth doing very different work. So, Susanna, I wanted to ask you, these folks, I don't know how you kept track in this conversation because you were ranging across all these different disciplines. Why does the American Cancer Society fund research across so many different aspects of the cancer continuum? Like, I guess briefly, could you, before we get into the guests, can you explain like the kind of breadth of, of research we fund and why we fund so many different kinds of research? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I was super excited to talk to these amazing scientist from Dartmouth because they really do span what we would call the the research continuum. So two different ways for our listeners to think about it when you think about funding cancer research, right? There's the research continuum, which would be fun from all the way from developmental research, which you may have heard of like basic science, to translational science, to clinical science. And if you have to think about like a good kind of acronym for that. I think about like water running through pipes. So basic science would be the water and the water is running through the pipes. And that's the ideas that's trying to understand what a, what do proteins do? What is this DNA responsible for? And what do these cells do? And what, what happens to them in normal cells? And then what, what are they doing bad in cancer cells, right? That's really kind of basic science. And then as the water moves up maybe into your faucet, we think of that as translational research. And translational research is when we move those really basic ideas and understanding into being like, okay, well, if we understand maybe what that protein does and how that cell is important in a number in a normal cell and how it's doing something different in a cancer cell, could we could we maybe make a drug to block that thing that it's doing wrong in a cancer cell? Or could we make a device to study it, right? We're translating it. And usually we're using animal models to do that. And then I think of like the water as it moves through your faucet and hits the sink, that's clinical research. And so clinical research is taking that basic and translational science and moving it into patients. And so those are the actual drugs and devices and technologies that we are going to use in patients to um, change their cancer experience. And so all of it's necessary, right? So that that's why we fund across the cancer experience, across um, the patient experience. And so those, that represents the folks we talked to at Dartmouth, all the way from a basic scientist to uh, very much patient-oriented uh, work in the clinical spectrum. And well, you guys are going to love it. These folks are amazing. They're fantastic. Yeah, let's give these friendly people their propers. So we've got three guests. Dr. Amber Barnado, she is the Susan J. and Richard M. Levy 1960 Distinguished Professor in Healthcare Delivery. Uh, we've also had Kathleen Lyons, she's Associate Professor of Psychiatry, and James Mosley, Professor of Biochemistry and Cell Biology. Three very different fields, three leading scientists, and pretty nice conversation you shepherded there. Yeah, you know, the thing is, though, that I was reminded of is that we don't know so much about all these areas. So you'll hear the excitement in their voices, you'll understand what is the cutting edge research, and then you'll get a glimpse into how much we don't know. But yet you'll hear a lot of hope in their voices. And I think you'll come away from this podcast feeling like, yeah, we should be funding in all these spaces. This is all, um, this is all really meritorious research. So enjoy. All right, welcome Amber, Kathy, and Jamie, all from Dartmouth. We are so excited to have you. Thanks for joining the Theory Lab podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, we're really excited. This will be fun. Thanks, Susanna. We're looking forward to it. Okay, well, we are going to jump into some fun science. So for our listeners who don't have the opportunity to talk to you guys every day, I'd love for you to Help, help us understand, 
first of all, in your research, what is the what's the big picture problem that you are trying to solve? And Amber, let's start with you. So I hate to start on a sort of a sad subject because people usually don't like to talk about dying. Uh, but it turns out that 600,000 people will die with cancer this year in the United States alone. And really making sure that their medical treatment aligns with their personal goals and that their symptoms and emotional distress are effectively managed and that their family members are supported is, is really one of our major duties um, in providing comprehensive cancer care. All right. Thanks, Amber. And just to help circle back, I mean, you said that you didn't want to start on a sad subject, but this sounds like it is a a a way to bring peace and some calm to a a really challenging space. So, how is there a a term or a phrase that you could use to summarize what you do? Well, you know, I study the end of life. Um, I focus in particular on end of life decision making, and you know, I think a lot of people think of this as is something sad, um, something to turn away from. But any of you who have grandparents or aging parents know that this is just a part of the cycle of life. Um, And it's a stage that we all pass through. And it's also an incredibly rich um, and growth-filled stage for many people. Um, It's an opportunity for them to pass on their knowledge to the future generations. It's that last part of one's life. Um, Sometimes for people with cancer, it comes sooner than they expected, but our goal is to think about the whole person care and to make sure that patients and their families are well supported um, and that they live as well as they can for as long as they can. Oh, I love that, to to live as long as you can and as well as you can. Okay, thank you, Amber. It was beautifully said. Okay, Kathy, I think I, I would just like to ask you the same question. Can you tell us about what the, what's the big problem that your research is trying to solve? Sure. So my training is in rehabilitation science. So I try to find the best ways to help people recover after their cancer treatment and do the things they want and need to be able to do. That means taking care of themselves or their family or working, all the things we want and need to be able to do, but becomes challenging um, with all the symptoms of cancer or the side effects of treatment. So that's what we're trying to focus on, how to help people uh, function well during and after treatment. Okay, interesting. So this is taking a step back maybe from what Amber said is more of an end of life space, live as long as you can and as well as you can. You're in that in-between space, which quite frankly, we're all in, which in, in the way you explained it is helping us to deal with the challenges that maybe our cancer and our cancer treatment presents and living our best life during that space. Is that one way to think about it? Yeah, I think that's spot on. I mean, Amber and I care about the same things, which is helping people live fully for whatever length of time that they have. And so in rehabilitation, sometimes I work with people who are living with incurable cancers, or sometimes it is what I described earlier. You're done with treatment and you're moving on. But my particular focus is, are you able to do those activities that make life worth living? The social activities you do, the things you do for work and self-care, taking care of yourself, your parenting, um, the things that become difficult when you don't feel well. I I really, so my background is in occupational therapy. We, We work on how do you help do that and function as best you can so that life feels, you're living life to the fullest. Very nice. All right. So moving from living as long as we can and as well as we can to thinking more tangibly about what are those things and are you able to do those things that make life worth living? All right, Jamie, same question. What is your lab working on? What's the big challenge? Yeah, so I, I work in a, a different scale than um, than Kathy and Amber. So I'm I'm a cell biologist, and you know Amber mentioned uh, decision making. I'm also interested in in decision making, but I'm interested in how cells um, make make decisions. And so all the cells in our body um, have a lot of decisions to make, and the one that I'm really interested in is how a cell decides that it's going to divide. And of course, we all know that um, cancer is a, a disease of uncontrolled cell divisions. And so I'm really interested in what are the 
genes and proteins that control that decision for a cell and what is it that goes wrong in uh, the case of a cell that's, um, that's causing cancer. I love that. So this is just fascinating. I love that we've gone from the macro scale of decision making where we're thinking on a population scale or in the patient scale about decisions that cancer and our cancer diagnosis has has asked us to make about end of life and quality of life. And then as Kathy reminded us, we're also making decisions about what are we doing as we live our life and as we are going through treatments and finishing treatments and are we able to accomplish the activities that really, as she said, make our life worth living. And then Jamie's asking questions on an entirely different scale, a a micro scale, which is perhaps some of the, the very first decisions really that are relevant to cancer, which have to do with cell division. And as a cell decides, quote unquote, um, to divide or not to divide. So this is going to be an outstanding podcast. All right. So I, can I just, can I just jump in there? This is Amber. The interesting thing about that is my first thought in listening to Jamie is like the cells have free will, like, can they actually make decisions? Um, but that brings up to me this, um, this, uh, you know, I think it's maybe counterintuitive to many people who listen to this podcast, but it turns out that as much as humans, we think that we have free will, When you have a diagnosis of cancer, oftentimes you don't feel like you have any decisions to make. And that's one of the things that I've observed over and over in my research. And I study patient-doctor encounters. And and oftentimes the patients are in the room and they're hearing all this information. It's overwhelming from their doctors. And they really just default to whatever the doctor tells them to do. It's not as if they have a decision at all, um, even though they do have lots of treatment decisions. And so as I was just thinking in my mind about it's so silly to think that cells have free will. But then I realized that sometimes we as humans, when we're faced with cancer and we're overwhelmed, we lose our free will. I love that. What uh, what a beautiful parallel. So I, what a great group of three people. I bet you guys don't collaborate often. So maybe we'll, we'll have generated a new collaborative effort between the three of you from the micro to the macro level to talk about decision making. And, and you're exactly right. Um, there are so many decisions to be made. Um, okay, so Amber, I'd love to know. So you you shared with us that your foci is really on thinking about living as long and as well as we can. So talk to us about what's something that has happened recently in your field, maybe that might surprise us, a recent advance. Well, I, I don't know how recent this is, um, but, um, you know, I think it was pretty groundbreaking in our field, which is that um, we learned that early engagement of multidisciplinary palliative care in cancer care for patients who have incurable cancer improves patients' quality of life, um, it reduces their symptom burden, and it may even extend their life, and yet they also have uh, less intensive care at the end of life. That is to say, they may live longer and yet not end up getting hooked up to machines in the ICU. And so um, this has been in the last decade, we've learned this through clinical trials, and it is, uh, it's been just completely paradigm changing in cancer care. And maybe you could tell us, why do you think that is? Give us just a little bit of an insight. I'm so glad that you asked that because we don't know why it is, right? So multidisciplinary specialty palliative care includes doctors, nurses, social workers, chaplains, all coming together to provide whole person care for patients and their families. They do things like help manage symptoms. So you can imagine why symptom management might help giving patients pain medicines or medicines for shortness of breath, or even giving them exercises to help with their fatigue. Um, But they also help with coping and with medical decision-making. But although we know that specialty palliative care works, we don't quite know what are the mechanisms of action by which it works. We think there's something fundamentally ineffable happening in the relationship between the patient and their provider team. 
which has to do with a feeling of human connection and feeling heard and understood in a way that, that gets lost in the overall uh, you know, hubbub of cancer care. And that that in itself may have some salutary effects. It may actually improve people's well-being, but it also appears to help with their coping. And it also helps them make the best decisions that they can because they have someone who's helping them interpret the information and to connect the information that they're hearing from their cancer care team with their own goals and values and what matters most to them. Um, but the reason I got so excited when you asked that question is because that's going to be the focus of my next research study. You know, and I, I, I think it will resonate with our listeners. It certainly resonates with me. And I'm going to ask Kathy the same thing is, is your answer that we don't know. And, that, and that's why we have this podcast, because there's so much in science that blows me away. And I think blows our listeners the way that we just don't know. So, Kathy, same same question. What tell us what's happening that's good and exciting in your field? Um, what would you like to share? Well, I I think if we're talking about cancer rehabilitation in general, exercise is one of our most studied interventions we have out there. Um, but recently, people are talking more about a concept called prehabilitation instead of rehabilitation after the fact, getting people better. The concept of prehabilitation is trying to get people in their best shape before their treatment starts so that they're better able to tolerate and stick with their mm. treat, treatment and perhaps even have some better outcomes. Um, so I would say that's probably one of the most recent advances that's been studied more and more in cancer rehabilitation. So Kathy, tell us, wh- why do you think that is? Is it, why are we moving more toward this prehabilitation? Is it because we're realizing that cancer can impact anyone and will impact so many of us that we need to, to arm ourselves better for this potential eventuality? Um, I, I'm so interested in this, this brain shift. Well, you know, I think some of it is we need every tool in our arsenal to try to deal with this problem. Um, Some of it is, you know, it's coming from patients who do want to try to, you know, rally their physical health as much as possible. And instead of just one more medicine or one more um, drug coming into their body, what's my personal medicine? What can I do to help? Now, I will tell you the flip side of it is, um, you know, my mother actually went through prehabilitation. She had lung cancer and was not particularly a great candidate for lung cancer surgery, but she was able to exercise for about four weeks, which did sort of tip the scales and make her able to tolerate the cancer surgery that she kind of was on the fence for. I will tell you, she wasn't interested in exercise and she kind of felt like it was adding insult to injury to say, I'm diagnosed with cancer and you want me to exercise more. (laughs) So it's not always coming from the patients, but by after the experience, she actually told her surgeon like, okay, well, if you need me to tell other people why this is important, you can have them call me because now I understand that really did help get me in shape for something that was pretty difficult. So it, it's not an easy problem and it's not necessarily an easy sell, but I think it's gaining traction because um, we're learning that things like exercise can have some benefits that, um, you know, we're just still trying to figure out why and which ones. All right. So Jamie, I'm, I'm seeing such interesting parallels despite the fact that your work is so different from what Amber and Kathy do. So you shared with us that a, a question that we've studied for decades is this misunderstanding perhaps of cancer cell division, right? Cancer cells are have this really awful capability to divide indefinitely. And then the worst cancer cells go on to spread to other parts of our body or to metastasize. And so they do that through the use of genetic mutations and the production of proteins that allow them these 
pretty terrible capabilities. But like Amber said, there's a, a lot of the reasons behind these mutations and these proteins that are produced that we, we just don't know. So I think to get started and to dive into what you're doing a little bit, I'd love to know, help us to understand in advance what's something new and cool that our listeners probably don't know about cancer cell division and this space that we're in. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, some of the really recent advances that have changed the way we think about um, how these cells are making these decisions are, are on the, the technological side. So uh, in my lab and a lot of other labs love to watch cells and watch the proteins that um, cells are filled up with to figure out how those proteins are, are causing the cells to make these decisions. And so we've um, had some real breakthroughs in how well we can watch individual proteins uh, in cells to try and figure out where in the cell they are when they're um, promoting cell division, or in other cases, other proteins that are telling the cells don't divide now. So our ability to, to watch these now on the level of nanometers, uh, which is you know a thousand times smaller than a micrometer, uh, is has really revolutionized um, how we can how we can watch uh, proteins directing cellular behavior. And the other technical um, advance that's really um, helped us is through uh, techniques like CRISPR, which some people may have heard of. And this allows us to go into cells and make a directed mutation that we want to make. So we can go in and change a single teeny part of the cell's DNA and ask what happened to that cell. And that allows us to take, for example, a mutation that's been identified in cancers and now ask if we make that mutation in a cell where we can now watch the proteins doing what they're doing, what happens? What exactly is the change in the behavior uh, of that cell? So I think those two, the combination of those two um, technical breakthroughs have really allowed us to get a better map of, of what are the proteins that are directing these decisions and where are they acting and, and what happens if, if we put mutations into them. Oh, that's really cool. Well, okay, I have two two follow-up questions for you, Jamie. The first is, you said that you're watching these bizarro tiny movies, which are probably not exciting, but very informative, that show where these proteins in cancer cells are hanging out. And you know if these proteins are, we'll put them in the good guy camp or the bad guy camp. And so... The good guy camp would be the proteins that are like, hey, this is not cool. Don't divide. Need to stop this. And the bad guy camp are like, yeah, cell division is where it's at. You need to do more of this. Keep dividing. So you said that you're, you're watching this happening, which is fascinating, and that you can see this on a nanometer scale. So help our audience understand, how big is a nanometer? Compare it to like, I don't know, a human hair. So a nanometer, again, it's going to be a thousand times smaller than a micrometer. And a micrometer is a thousand times smaller uh, than a millimeter. And a millimeter is a thousand times smaller than a meter. So we're on, <laughs> you know, orders of magnitude um, separated in the cells that um, my lab uses. Uh, to, to work on are about 15 micrometers long. So how wow. do we um, actually watch these, these proteins? It's actually pretty remarkable. We can put fluorescent tags on individual uh, proteins. And then in the microscope, we can focus um, specifically on proteins that have that fluorescent tag. And that allows us to watch that specific subclass of, of proteins. And we can watch them move from, for example, one end of the cell to another or Maybe they move from the surface of the cell into the cell's nucleus where its DNA is, and that's where a lot of the action is happening. So we can start to see our cells moving from one part of the cell to another at the time when they're um, making a decision. And again, if we make a mutation that maybe has been identified in, in um, cancer cells, is that going to change the, that protein's ability to move from one part of the cell to another? That's incredible. And by fluorescent tag, you actually mean that you are sticking something on the protein. So like it would be, I don't know, like adding a kite string to a kite and you can follow the string. Like sometimes your kite gets really high in the sky, but you can still see this long fluttery string hanging down. So you can actually follow this light and see 
in the microscope where the protein is. And then by using the second technology that we probably have read about in the paper or in magazines um, or online, CRISPR, you could then say, this is a protein. I, I'm interested in where it's moving. It's either doing something helpful or not helpful for the cancer cell as far as cell division. I'd really like to mutate the DNA and, and see if that changes it. Is that a, a way to think about the process that you're that you're studying? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and these these tags, believe it or not, are ones that we've um, stolen or borrowed from um, bioluminescent organisms. So if you think of jellyfish or other um, organisms in the sea that sometimes fluoresce in certain um, times or conditions, they have proteins that cause that fluorescence. And people figured out um, several decades ago how to take those proteins and fuse them to proteins that we're interested in studying in our particular cell of origin. Um, and so we make those fusions and those then we're able to to watch them uh, moving around in cells. That's right. All right. Thanks, James. All right, Amber, I'm going to pivot back to you. And so just like James is making these fusions and watching proteins moving around in cells, you're doing something that's not all that different in the macro sense, and that is that you are studying humans and human connections. And just like James is trying to understand how mutations in DNA impact these proteins that are important for cell division and how these proteins move back and forth, you're trying to understand how all these different impacts and you mentioned lots of different things. You mentioned like um, having different types of interactions with a patient, like symptom care and fatigue care and medical decision making, that all these different things, like kind of like the different mutations that James is doing to DNA, that all these different things are somehow impacting patients and really doing something fundamental. But you don't really know exactly what it is. So maybe can you help us to understand what is the goal of your research right now? Well, I study, as I mentioned before, medical decision-making. And so in order to get at that, I use several different tools. One is, I guess, kind of similar to what Jamie was saying, this idea of like watching movies. But in this case, I'm actually watching patient care. So I shadow doctors. Um, and most recently, my American Cancer Society funded study had me shadowing doctors at NCI designated cancer centers around the country. I would shadow oncologists. I would shadow palliative care doctors and even hospitalists who were taking care of cancer patients in the hospital and just watch the way they talk to their patients. Um, and so this is really a naturalistic observation of real clinical decision making. And I try to understand a little bit more about what governs those relationships. In order to try to understand more, I also do things like uh, interview doctors and interview patients about their experiences uh, interacting with each other. Um, and another thing that I do is I, I run doctors through simulations where I have actors playing the roles of patients. And I do this because uh, then I can make the patient be the same time after time again. And then I know if there's a difference in the interaction that it's all due to the doctor, what the doctor brings into the room um, and their own biases and their own expectations, their own beliefs. Um, and so I take these three different types of data together to try to understand what's governing patient-doctor communication and decision-making around really important things at the end of life, like whether or not to be put on a breathing machine if you have uh, 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 a life-threatening pneumonia. Wow. Okay. So it so much more goes into this than I think any any of us would have thought about. Um, so Kathy, I I want to pivot to you now and ask a similar question. I'm really interested to understand the goal of your research because you shared with us so nicely that you are interested in cancer rehabilitation in general, but cancer prehabilitation specifically, and that we really need every tool in our arsenal. So I'd love to know, maybe you could share with us some of those tools and maybe a goal of your research right now. Yeah, I, I've done a little bit. We did do a pilot study of that prehabilitation approach here at Dartmouth, but the bigger studies that I'm working on right now 
are more focused on probably the traditional rehabilitation aspect. So for example, I'm working with women who are done with their breast cancer treatment. And what I hear continually from people in my studies is, you know, well, the doctors told me it would take a year to feel like myself again now that treatment's over. And so the research question for me is, does it have to take a year? You know, my research mm -hmm. is really about finding ways to try to accelerate recovery and help people find ways to do the things they want and need to do, despite the symptoms of cancer, the long side effects of treatment. And so, um, you know, we talked a little bit before about feeling like you have no choices or no control. And to be honest, that's a lot of what we do is sort of sifting through, I can't be the parent I want to be, or I can't be, I can't work the way I used to. And a lot of what we do is breaking down those activities to figure out which piece of it do we have some control over that there might be some partial solutions for recovery there. And I'll tell you, you know, if you were trying to ask me, how in the world do you do that? <laughs> uh, in a nutshell, I'd say, if you can't do the activity that you want to do, we sort of have three general options. We can change something about your body or your spirit, your mind, to try to get it in the best optimal place. And that's where exercise comes in or some of these symptom management strategies. But we also have the opportunity to change the way you do the activity, to adapt it somehow, to change a couple steps of it or use equipment. Or the third option is change the environment so that it supports you in doing that better, whether that's the physical environment, the social environment. And so that, that's generally how we go about it, to help people break down activities, to be like, what can't you do that you want to do? And how do we change you, the activity, or the environment to get you closer to doing that? And that's the approach, whether we're recovering, working with people who are recovering after treatment, or whether you know that you'll be living with an incurable cancer for the rest of your life, but you want, again, there are things that you want to be able to do. That, that's the general approach we take in my research. Yeah, I really like that because it it resonates with me that you're you're asking how do we change to move forward, um, not just to be static in this situation. Yeah, it's just what 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 are all the options we have in our arsenal to maximize the fit between what you can do and what you want to be able to do in a particular environment. And, you know, there are often not perfect solutions, but there are usually partial solutions. And it's, it's part of that, again, finding which aspect of this is under your control, because a lot isn't, you know, you can't wish away the cancer, you can't, you know, certain treatments have certain effects, but there are some things about your choices, your activities, your coping that are um, things that you can try to harness to get you closer to the life and the activities you want to do. And, and that's what we spend our time working with people. And it's different for everyone and everyone has different priorities and activities. And, um, and so it's just, it's a, it's a privilege to sort of be along that journey of how do we get you closer to what feels like your fullest life possible? Hmm. I love this. There's so many things running through my mind. And um, as I talk to the three of you and one of one of them is um, some interesting parallels. So, Jamie, I want to pivot back to you because when we left off talking to you, you had you, you had explained to us how your lab was really interested in studying proteins that were involved in cell division. And you could tag these proteins with fluorescent dyes and watch them move in cells and you could mutate DNA and the DNA of these of these proteins and then watch how that impacted how these proteins moved inside cells and where the proteins were, which ultimately impacts the functionality of these proteins and their contributions to cell division. So unlike Kathy, things are very much under your control. <laughs> you really are controlling this situation in this experiment. But <laughs> Unlike Kathy, or I guess in some ways, you know, Kathy relayed to us that she can go through these these steps, you know, where she can offer different options to patients that we can change your your body and your mind, or we can change the activity and the environment. 
the, some of the, I think, differentials that you're dealing with is that everybody's DNA is different. You know, every, you're, you know, when we think about moving some of the work that you do in the lab in this very controlled environment to a therapeutic situation, to a clinical situation, you know, cancers are all different. They're all made up of different mutations, both within a cancer and an individual's cancer and certainly within humans. So I'm certainly interested, and I think our listeners will be interested to know, um, what's the goal of your research? You know, ultimately, what are you doing now and, and what are you after? What are you guys hoping to do? Yeah, so I, I'd say um, the, the kind of main goal or, or main question that, that we're, we're tackling is uh, how in a cell, if we, if we imagine a cell, it grows, typically grows to about twice its regular size and then it divides. So I'd love to know, and a lot of people would love to know, how does it know that it's grown to twice its size? How does a cell know what size it is? And, and how can it use that information to make this decision that it wants to divide? Um, so I'm really interested in trying to find you know, measuring sticks or other ways that cells have to um, measure their size. And that involves a lot of uh, proteins, and so trying to figure out how the distribution of proteins in a cell might give it some kind of a map or a, a measuring stick, and then how that can then get transmitted down to these core proteins and genes that are controlling the decision to divide. Fascinating. And then once we knew more about cell division, let's say, you know, just kind of five years down the road, how might that change the way we think about cancer cells and the uncontrolled cell division that they go through. Let's say we understood more about how a healthy cell knows it's time. You you are twice your size and that's enough and now it's time to divide. So unhealthy cells, cancer cells, that that decision making is off. So how might that change the way we think about cancer treatments and cancer cell biology in general? Yeah, that's a great question. And a lot of what we do is try to identify what are the proteins that are involved in this and how they talk to each other. And what that really gives us is a, a blueprint for how we can then um, uh, attack the system in, in cancer cells. So if we understand how cells normally divide, how they normally know they've grown the right amount and that they shouldn't divide until they reach that point, then we can start asking, okay, in a cancer cell, what part of that um, blueprint is, has gone wrong. And if we know what those proteins are, then we can start talking about what are um, uh, therapeutics and what are drugs that can actually target that class of protein. Or can we start then focusing our efforts on a specific protein to develop a drug against it? So we're trying to identify a lot of those proteins, identify how they interact with each other to figure out if we can you know, specifically block how protein A binds to protein B if we know that that's going to cause a problem in a cancer cell. You know, Jamie, one of the things I was really interested to talk to you about on this podcast and to have you here is that your your department is a, a more of a basic science department than that of Kathy and Amber, but I thought you'd fit right in because you could show the diversity of cancer research that happens at Dartmouth and how it's all critically important and supports this amazing cancer continuum that Dart that happens at Dartmouth, that we fund at the American Cancer Society, that's all really critical. I, I think it would be helpful for our listeners to understand, is, is there something about the environment at Dartmouth or the way that you guys interact with each other, um, maybe that's contributed to your ability to move your research forward? Yeah, I think, you know, folks at Dartmouth, tend, it tends to be a very supportive uh, environment, and we have the benefit of, of being a part of this comprehensive uh, cancer center, where someone like, like me, who thinks a lot about cells and cell division, also gets to interact with people like Amber and Kathy and all these clinicians who are doing all these amazing things, and it gives me some really fantastic perspectives thinking about how the work I'm doing on cells contributes to this much, much, much larger picture of how we're all working on cancer and how many, how, how many different uh, angles there are 
to the way we think about uh, treating cancer. You know, I think about it so much at the level of a single cell, but it's clearly so much more broad than that. And uh, the environment at, at Dartmouth is just one where people love bumping into each other and, and talking to each other about these things. And by being a part of this cancer center, I'm uh, very often on, you know, committees and at different meetings where I'm interacting with, again, clinicians and people like Amber and Kathy working on uh, patient care. And it really just uh, gives great perspective to um, the enormity of the, the, the challenge, but also how we each contribute to um, kind of a, a team-based effort on it. Each of you, uh, Amber, Kathy, and, and Jamie, you've all been funded at different points in your career by the American Cancer Society. Maybe, Amber, I'll, I'll ask you first, and Kathy or Jamie, if you'd like to chime in, that'd be awesome. But, Amber, are there ways that ACS funding has impacted your career? Uh, ACS funding has been incredibly instrumental in my career. You know, I've received it at multiple stages. Uh, first, when I was an early career scientist, I received a pilot and exploratory grant, um, and that was to study what the effect of race was on medical decision-making. Going back to that study that I told you about or the approach that I use where I use actors playing the role of patients, um, I did a study that looked at, well, how does the race of the patient affect how the doctor behaves in the room uh, when they're talking about um, decisions about whether to pursue life-supporting therapy, like being put on a breathing machine. Um, these are patients with advanced cancer or actors playing patients with advanced cancer. And what we found is that when the patient um, is uh, African-American, although they, the doctor says the same thing, more or less, verbally that they said when they were in the room with the white patient, they tend to have fewer nonverbal behaviors that build rapport. They tend to stand further away from the patient. They're less likely to touch the patient. They don't tend to look at the patient and the patient's caregiver as much. They look more over at the vital signs tracing on the monitor. And they tend to have a closed body posture. They sort of cross their arms or maybe hold a chart in front of them. And this is really, really powerful because as we know, um, basically there's a higher rate of use of intensive care and life-sustaining treatment for black patients with cancer than white patients. And it's been attributed year after year after year to black patients having lack of trust in the healthcare system or um, having preferences for aggressive care. But I think what we're coming to understand through research like this that was supported by the American Cancer Society is that it's actually, a we're contributing to the problem by not creating trustworthiness. We're not showing that we are trustworthy by coming close to the patients and treating them humanistically. Um, and so that's, uh, that got me on a, on a whole body of work looking at uh, implicit mm -hmm. cognition and nonverbal communication. So that's been really cool. I've also gotten a research scholar grant recently, and that's to study um, NCI designated cancer centers. So that's that naturalistic observation and trying to understand the differences out in the wild how doctors talk to black and white patients with advanced cancer. And then I, the thing that probably, um, there's two other things that have been really key for me. One is that there's an annual Kathleen Foley Palliative Care Retreat held. Um, it's a research symposium and it's jointly funded by the National Palliative Care Research Center, sponsored by the um, American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine and ACS. And it is really key to professional development and networking and, and really building the um, researchers in our field. It's now uh, really devoted in particular to early career development, and I get to serve as a mentor and an educator in that um, that retreat. And that's um, one of my favorite things to do um, every year. And then I also got to serve for, I believe it was four or five years um, on the uh, American Cancer Society's uh, palliative care uh, symptom management study section. Um, and so Really, that was an opportunity for me to serve and give back to ACS, but it also was a place for me to get to know some of the other amazing scientists who study palliative care. And um, I'll tell you a little story that is so meaningful to me, which is that, um, you know, NIH study sections um, that I've been on, they're, they're kind of, um, I don't know, they're, they're uh, all business. And, you know, I think a lot of people are trying to show that they're the smartest person in the room. <laughs> and so they're not very welcoming places, I'll say. But that ACS study section, um, it always started with people sharing something um, surprising about themselves. We were invited to talk about something that was that other people in the room wouldn't know about us. It kind of humanized us. 
And it was a place where I had a really clear sense that all of the scientists in the room were committed to making the proposals that we were reviewing better by providing Mm -hmm. constructive feedback and really being supportive. And so it really set the norms for me around how to think about giving feedback to my colleagues. So the ACS funding and being uh, a part of the funding, um, you know, the, the study sections have, have, and the research symposium has totally shaped my career and I, I couldn't be more grateful for it. Kathy, is there anything you'd like to share? Has ACS funding impacted your, your research or your career? Oh, absolutely. Uh, very similar answers to Amber. ACS funding completely launched my research program. I, I had what was called a career development award. So it gave me training and research methods, allowed me to pilot test an intervention that we had developed. Um, just a luxury of a five-year grant that really helped me to learn from others and generate my own ideas and pilot data. But I also want to bring up one thing that's different about American Cancer Society funding from other sources of funding is that you end up having a lot of contact with regional ACS staff and volunteers. So I ended up going to a lot of American Cancer Society events like the Relay for Life in my own community. Sometimes I was just participating in the event, but sometimes I went as I was part of the program where, you know, I was asked to talk about your work. You know, I was one of those examples of like, where does the money go when we raise it? And those events really give you so much inspiration and feedback about what patients and families want and need and appreciate in terms of their cancer care and their recovery. Um, For example, I did a subsequent pilot study directly in response to a concern that was raised by a cancer survivor at the very first ACS event I went to. Um, So it just really, I mean, those are the dividends that come from ACS funding in a way that I don't think I've experienced with funding from another foundation or, you know, my my government funding. It's fascinating. Wonderful to hear. Uh, Jamie, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, the ACS has really built my career. I was uh, funded after graduate school by the the ACS as a postdoctoral researcher. And then once I transitioned here to Dartmouth, I um, was also funded by a a research scholar grant. So um, it's really enabled us to do, uh, enabled me to do research at multiple levels of my career. And something I, I love to point out to people about ACS, which I just love about it, is the the broad scope of uh, work that's funded by ACS. Um, my my own work in my own lab, we use yeast cells as a model to study human cells because we can do a lot of um, experimental tricks with yeast that are much harder to do with with human cells. And the ACS has this really long history of funding research that uses model systems like yeast and fruit flies and worms that have um, really made some of the key discoveries that you know, lead their way up into uh, human cells and cancer cells. So I've always had this just tremendous respect for um, ACS um, committing to that foundational uh, science that really builds a lot of what we know about um, the, the, the problems that go wrong uh, in cancer cells. And I also loved hearing uh, Amber talk about her uh, service on the ACS study section, because I'm also at that point where I've, I've had the chance to give back um, by serving on an ACS study section, but, you know, of course, mine more on, on cell biology, and it's the exact same environment, this incredibly supportive, warm environment where we're trying to um, be as helpful as possible to um, all of the applications that come in, and it's just um, really indicative to me of that wonderful spirit uh, of the ACS, and it's great to hear that whether it's in a cell biology study section or a palliative care study section, that it's, it's really um, always there. All right, Amber, I'll, I'll pass the last question to you. And I just want to share with each of you that we're so grateful that we've had the opportunity to talk to you. And I hope that you know that one of the messages that you shared with our listeners is that no matter how cancer has impacted you or the folks that you love, that the American Cancer Society is funding research in this space. And we have some really, really wonderful researchers um, who are doing their best each and every day to uh, move the bar in cancer. So I'll, I'll ask each of you the same question. And Amber, again, I'll start with you. Many of our listeners are 
uh, cancer patients or survivors and caregivers? Is there a, a special message you would like to share with this group of listeners? I think the message is really to spread the gospel of palliative care. Um, it, it improves the quality of life uh, for patients, and I know that a lot of people are afraid of it. They worry that that means that, um, that they're giving up or somehow that it's the same as hospice, and it's not. Uh, it is something that you do alongside with your disease-directed cancer care, and um, I, that would be what I would recommend is that if you have a loved one or anyone you know who has advanced and curable cancer, um, to encourage them to ask for uh, palliative care to be involved in their cancer care. All right. Thank you, Amber. Kathy, same question. What message would you like to share? Um, I guess I want to say that there's a big push for community engagement for all of the research programs here at Norris Cotton Cancer Center. Um, we're working hard to create new mechanisms that allow us to share our research and discoveries with people in our region, but more importantly, to find ways that members of the community can tell us what's important to them and what they think about the various studies we do here and what we should be doing here. And if, you know, they can learn a little bit about what we're doing if they search our Cancer Center website for community engagement. So I think that's my message. I want to send the message to everyone that your voice is important and we, we want to connect with you. So thanks. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Jamie, you have the last word. All right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess I'd just say that we're, uh, a reminder that we're kind of all in this together. Um, there's so many different angles to... Um, fighting cancer and, you know, whether it be here at Dartmouth where we've got all these, you know, we've got folks working on the level of cells and proteins all the way up through patient care and um, beyond. Uh, also through the ACS, you know, that this is really a team effort and we're all kind of working on our individual parts, but um, a reminder that we're all working together to um, tackle all these different aspects of, of cancer and really um, with the ultimate goal of, of uh, helping patients and survivors. Thank you, Jamie, and thanks to each of you. What a wonderful note to end on. You're, you are all very much appreciated, and for all our listeners, you are absolutely, you're not in it alone. We're, we're behind you and thinking of you, and um, to uh, Amber and Kathy and Jamie, good luck. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Thank it's you. been great to, to talk to you thanks, all. Thanks, Anna.